listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Please stand for the reading of scripture. This morning we'll be reading from Galatians 6, 6 through 10. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. I better start with getting the obvious out of the way. Um, Yes, I did get a haircut yesterday. Thank you for noticing. Uh, Just a few hours after I got a thumb cut. So... um, but with this thing on here, I mean, that's just so that I, when I hit it on things, it doesn't break open and bleed everywhere. Um, it's, it'll be fine. Good news is I did not suck this thumb last night. So <laughs> progress. Well, anyway, what we're really here for, Galatians 6, 6 through 10. A couple days ago, my daughter and I were watching a TV show together, and there was a scene in the show where one of the characters is sent outside into this sort of Western-style negotiation face-off parley type situation representing these other two characters and, and he goes out there and, and he's got this tablet with the it, the um the you know the demands on it and he's out there and he's being all servile and he's just sort of like fawning over the others as he's reading this and saying and and we are here to offer you exactly nothing it is played for laughs, of course, and I laughed, and, and as I was laughing, I was like, don't shoot the messenger, right? And my daughter looks at me and goes, what does that mean? I was like, oh, that's right, you're 11, and there's still things you don't know. So I had to explain it to her. Don't shoot the messenger means that the character of the message is not necessarily equivalent to the character of the messenger, Right, so in a negotiation, if you get, if you hear bad news or something you don't want to hear from the other side of the negotiation, you shouldn't respond by taking it out on the messenger. Right, the message and the messenger are discrete. You can separate the two. There's not an inter, like a, a there's not a inexorable link between the two. Now, in the TV show we were watching, the message was courageous and honorable. The messenger, on the other hand, on the other hand, was more obsequious and ingratiating. The messenger didn't match the message, doesn't have to, unless you're talking about what we've been covering in Galatians over the last six chapters. When Paul writes this letter over and over again, he tells us like, hey, the message is actually supposed to change the messenger. The message is inexorably linked to the character of the message. And in this second-to-last paragraph of Galatians that we're looking at this morning, uh, Paul connects those dots of messenger and message. He connects them. Again, the character of the message shapes the character of the messenger. In other words, if the message that Christians carry into the world is a message about the generous, self-giving love of the Creator God in Jesus, then that message better shape and reshape the lives and the loves and the attitudes of the messengers, right? 
It makes perfect sense. Put it another way, if self-giving love is at the heart of the message, then self-giving love is at the heart of the messengers. And you're going to hear me say that a couple of times, so I'll just repeat it again right now. If self-giving love is at the heart of the message, then self-giving love is at the heart of the messengers. So let's jump into Galatians 6, 6 through 10, and we'll see how the self-giving love of Jesus is then reflected in the way we give of ourselves to others, especially where money and financial resources are involved. Uh, Pick it up in verse 6. All right. So Paul starts out as a bit of a topic change, kind of feels that way anyway, but he picks up in verse 6 with, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, it's not a surprise if you've read any of Paul's other letters to to see him sort of shifting to the topic of money here at the end of the letter. He speaks often about money. One reason was because he was constantly working on a fundraising campaign for the churches in Jerusalem, but he also talks about money because money's an issue in these new kinds of communities, these new families that he's building, these new communities called churches. Now, here in this letter, I think money is coming up for at least two different reasons. The first, well, after a dense letter like Galatians, I'm I'm guessing Paul knows that the churches that are going to be reading this letter are going to need some people to take time off from their normal work to sit down and try to understand it and then communicate it to others. Right? You don't get through a letter like Galatians and just be like, oh, yeah, that, that made a lot of sense. No, one, uh, one author writing about this says, you know, after you read Galatians, you want to go back and you're like, I need a class on Genesis and Leviticus and Exodus. Uh, also, we better cover the Psalms. Isaiah is going to be significant. And we should go back and cover Deuteronomy while we're at it as well. Like, that's going to take some time. And you, you need some people who have the freedom to spend that time reading, thinking, and then turning that into education for everyone else. But the second reason he shifts to money, and money as it pertains to teaching, is because he's working within this context of the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. Right? Chapter 5, the end of chapter 5 was all about, hey, here's, here's how we are to choose to live as individuals and as a community, embracing the fruit of the Spirit, putting off, forsaking the works of the flesh. And last week, we looked at the previous few verses. If someone in the community refuses to do that or finds that more difficult than they thought it would be, the responsibility of the communities to come alongside them, walk with them, and restore them back to the fruit of the Spirit. But as they say, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? So it's better the person never falls away in the first place because they're part of a community that puts a priority on teaching each other how to understand the Word of God, interpreted through the Messiah's life, applied through the power of the Spirit into each individual. Better to spend some proactive time teaching than reactive time remediating. You can see what he's getting at. So he says, all right, let the one who is taught share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, that's an assumption. He doesn't command us. Make sure you teach this to each other and then therefore, you know, provide recompense for those teachers. He's just assuming it's happening. He's assuming that, of course, there are teachers who are explaining how to read the Torah in light of the Messiah. In any community that's trying to follow Jesus, there are going to be some who are going to say, I want us all to understand this. 
and have a passion for getting out there and teaching. Now, these teachers are going to need some support if they're going to put their time and their focus into teaching. They can get by without support if they just subsist on ramen, I guess, or eat nothing. I mean, obviously not ramen back in, you know, this context. That was, that was contextualizing it for us. Uh, people back then and us today, if you're going to have people who dedicate full-time work to teaching, then you have to provide for some of their, I mean, you have to make it worth it because presumably they could be spending their time, you know, at a craft or farming or something to create the value and the money that they need in order to stay alive, right? Keep in mind, in the Greco-Roman economy, there were very few people who were what we would typically think of as wage earners. You know, you go to your nine-to-five job every day, you get your paycheck at the end of the week or every two weeks. Uh, the, The sort of least reliable way of getting work was to be a day laborer and just go out and be like, does anybody have any work for me? And see what you can get. What most people did was group up into their households and everyone within the household worked usually at one craft that they all shared in common in order to kind of lift the whole household together. So think about it. If you have somebody within that household who says, I have a passion for and I think a calling for understanding and explaining this, then when he or she is working on their lessons and spending time teaching, they're actually bringing the worth of the entire family down and affecting the whole family, the whole household. And so Paul's saying, look, in this family of families that is this church, don't make just one or two families bear the weight of the entire community's education. Spread it out. Share this sort of thing equally. Don't make just the one or just two families bear that load themselves. So he says, share all good things, whatever you have that's of value, with the one who teaches. Now, what I find fascinating about this is that he could have just as easily adopted sort of the contemporary Jewish practice and levy a a temple tax. Hey, every family, put in your two drachmas every corner, and then you can come to our grow class. You can come to our thing that, you know, we use to, to read the Torah together in light of the Messiah. We, you can come to our educational opportunities if you pay up. But he's not interested in setting up a payment plan. He's interested in people who give, who recognize value in what they're receiving and then give something of value in return. He'd rather go with the Spirit-prompted, generous giving you know, the kind that changes your heart, rather than taxation, which rarely changes hearts. So instead, I mean, he simply says here, hey, if you receive something of value from the teachers in your community, then you have something of value, then share it with them. They are working hard to relieve your ignorance. You should work hard to relieve their material needs. You see how it works? Back in seminary, I worked for a guy who did freelance AV and technical installations in super nice houses all over Dallas, Um, just like super nice houses. And because he got most of his uh, work, like word of mouth, and he started within his church community, uh, inevitably the people who would call on him would be like, hey, I heard you're really good, also heard you're a Christian, hey, I'm a Christian too, any chance we could do like the Christian price on this? And he, he would always respond like, well, as soon as Walmart gives me the Christian price on groceries, then I'll pass the discount on to you. He's like, I got kids to feed. The point being, there are, there are going to be pe- people within our church body who are passionate about other people understanding how to think, how to live, how to work, how to walk in light of this book. And you can get that from them for free if you want. 
but why make them why make them do it that way? I mean, you can get it for free, but you also get what you pay for. Look at the next couple of verses, seven and eight. See, verse six is about freely choosing to support the educational initiatives of the church, right? Spreading the load of it across multiple families instead of just one or two families. Well, verse seven and eight take that particular command and they reinforce it with a more general proverbial statement. Verse seven, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Now, this verse and the, and the one that follows, you can easily lift them out of their context and apply them proverbially to just about any question or situation. That's what you do with Proverbs. Uh, but this morning, I want us to see how Paul applies that to this particular situation, re-embed it in its context there. How does, how does this answer the question of how the community together provides materially for the teachers in the church? So, verse 7, do not be deceived you know, make no mistake, don't fool yourself. God is not mocked. You can't outwit Him. You can't outthink God or assume that, uh, that you can do one thing and not get the inevitable consequences of it. Here's the proverb, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. In other words, don't fool yourself. I mean, you can't outwit God. Whatever you plant, that's what you'll harvest. You know, there's that inexorable cause and effect relationship between what you put in and what you get out. And in the context of paying for, providing for good teaching within the church, don't fool yourself. You get what you pay for. And if you pay for nothing and you at the same time receive nothing, you don't think teaching is something that you need, well, you end up as one of those Jesus followers who think they can get by with just me and Jesus and the Holy Spirit told me so, right? Which is never a recipe for spiritual maturity. Never. If you think you can go down that path and not pursue any sort of serious, thoughtful, biblical teaching, you're fooling yourself. Because it doesn't take much more than one or two bad examples and a few bad teachings for someone to turn from the fruit of the Spirit to the work of the flesh. Verse 8, Paul pulls back up the flesh and spirit language that he's been kind of rolling around in since the beginning of chapter 5, but he's continuing the agricultural metaphor as well. Not exactly parallel to the previous verse, but still continuing the metaphor. Verse 7 was about what you plant. Verse 8 is about where you plant it. So, he says in verse 8, or verse 7, you reap what you sow, and verse 8, if you're going to sow to your own flesh, then what will you harvest? If you sow to your own flesh, if you invest in your own selfishness, if you sow to your own self-centeredness, if you invest in your own self-love, what are you going to get out of that? Well, from the flesh, he says, you'll harvest corruption. Remember, what you sow is what you reap. What you plant is what you harvest. If you plant in the flesh, then out of the flesh you get corruption. It's a gross word. It's decay and decomposition. It's fresh roadkill that eventually just becomes a greasy spot on the road. That's what you get out of investing in the flesh, either by saying, I don't need any of this stinking thinking, or saying, no, I've got it all figured out. In fact, I'm the one who should be teaching. Pay me. Well, you get out of that corruption. And another 
connection from this verse. You know, verse uh, 8 kind of goes a little bit further to explain what Paul meant back in chapter 5 and verse 21, right at the end of that list of the works of the flesh. You know, we listed off like all 15 of those and then said, and anything else like this, he says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things, those who do the works of the flesh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Chapter 6, verse 8 kind of fills that out a little bit more with a different metaphor. Those who sow to the flesh, to their own flesh, will from the flesh reap decay and destruction. Will not, as verse 21 says, inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that's not a statement of condemnation. That's just a statement of fact. Because in the end, in the very end, when God returns and brings heaven back to earth, what was separated at the beginning because of our sin, when He brings heaven back to earth, the coming of heaven, all of that that purity and goodness into the world will push right off the table anything that is antithetical to God and who He is. All of the evil, all of the destruction, all of the decay, all of the death will be pushed out of this world into its own place. The word we have for that is hell. And those who insist on clinging to their works of the flesh will, with their own works, be pushed out of the recreated world into the place of only death and destruction. That's why Paul wants us to sow to the Spirit. Sow to the Spirit, and from the Spirit you reap eternal life new, resurrected, bodily life in God's kingdom when heaven meets earth again. Now, if you are part of Messiah's family, you have seen the faithfulness of Israel's Messiah dying and rising again on your behalf and have responded with faith, then the Spirit of God's Son, Paul says in Galatians, has come into you and lives in you. It's not you who lives anymore. It's the Spirit who lives in you. That makes you a little heaven meets earth microcosm. You are what the world will eventually become when heaven and earth are rejoined. And if you are in the Messiah's family, then you are led by the Spirit. You will walk by the Spirit. You should line up with the Spirit. And as you plant the fruit of the Spirit over and over and over again, you'll inherit the kind of life that God promises is coming when the kingdom comes back. But you experience it now. You begin to experience that life characterized by the fruit, love, the life of joy, life of peace and patience and all the rest. But you get to experience it now in anticipation of what is to come. And as that life fills you and overfills you and spills out of you, it overflows into the community around you, and the results are obvious. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 starts with a warning, let us not grow weary of doing good, because in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. You can see the metaphor from farming life continuing, as well as a connection back to verse 6. I mean, the the sowing and the reaping, the harvest language continues, obviously, but from verse 6's share good comes verse 9's do good good. From the sharing of all good things comes the doing of good. Verse 6, he taught we should share all good things with the one who teaches. Here that command is further developed. Do not grow weary of doing good. One of those doing good things is the sharing of good in this context. Now, other translations render this warning a little more strongly. We must not grow weary. 
Because you know what it means to grow weary when you're trying your best at something and it is just not working out. I mean, either the task is above your skill level or the desired results take so long to finally come that you lose hearts, you lose motivation, you lose the emotional reserves to, to continue. And losing that motivation has like these instant, real physical effects on the body. And when I was in high school, I worked at a daycare, and my job, along with the other high schoolers, was we would come after school and like... The, the full-time workers were already exhausted from the day, and it was our job to keep everybody, you know, keep them involved in games and art projects and stuff like that. And over and over again, I saw the exact same thing. You've probably seen it too if you've ever been around like a five-year-old for more than three minutes. They're working on some sort of project, and it's not going the way they want. Whether it does not actually look like a dinosaur or the building keeps falling down or whatever it is. And, and after like three or four times, you're like, no, keep trying. And they're like, I have lost heart. <laughs> it may just be my child that, that sounds like, I have lost heart. And then there's just physical collapse. You've seen it, right? Physical collapse, complete lack of control of bodily emotions and functions. Things start flying, screams. Paint gets thrown on the wall, you know, whatever it is, because you, you lose that motivation to continue and you lose just basically all ability to operate into the future. This is what Paul's getting at. Do not grow weary of doing good. Do not turn into a frustrated five-year-old because what you're doing isn't having the consequences or the effects that you want it to have as quickly as you want it to. Do not grow weary of doing good. Doing good is an interesting phrase. I mean, most of the time when we see it, it refers to the morally good actions that you perform, right? And especially how those actions play out in a bigger community. Uh, But in this context where he's talking about and has begun the conversation about resourcing teachers within the community, it's going beyond the ordinary normal moral behavior and, and into this sort of idea of outward-facing projects that are beneficial to the, the whole community, even beyond the church. You know, in the ancient world, the, uh, the culture of civic benefaction was strong everywhere. The, those with means would outdo one another in giving gifts to the city. You know, you build a school, well, then I'm going to build a library. And then the next person says, well, then I'm going to build a temple. Well, I'll build a stadium. And you put your names on it with these larger and larger gifts to the city. You know, it signals your virtue and your interest in, in giving back to the community to life, you know, as a good citizen would, and secures your legacy, you know, for generations to come. That's good. That's not what Jesus' followers are supposed to be about. In motivation, in practice, yes. In motivation, no. Verse 10. He said in verse 9, don't grow weary of doing good, because in due season you will reap if you do not give up. There's the, the, you know, the agricultural metaphor. Don't try to dig up, your, don't try to harvest before you've actually grown anything. Uh, but verse 10, so then, logical conclusion, as we have the opportunity, which is another way of saying the opportunity is there, take it, while you have the opportunity, when it's presented to you, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So, are Jesus' followers supposed to pour themselves into doing good, especially civic good for the city and the community around them? He says, of course. 
I mean, from the very beginning, Jesus' followers felt as part of their mission was to not just proclaim the good news, but perform the good news. Not just say that the kingdom is coming, but actually live as if the kingdom is coming and live it out within their community and invite others into what that community or that kingdom life would look like if Jesus were really here and reigning. So to the extent of our means and to the extent of our opportunities, he says, do good to everyone. Everyone. But there's a balance. There's a balance as well. Jesus' followers have a responsibility to everyone, but also to those of the household of faith, the family of believers. For lots of reasons, just one that I'll highlight is that, you know, in this pagan Greco-Roman context, when you voluntarily say, you know what, I'm not serving the city's gods anymore, I'm stepping out of that and into this new family of Jesus' followers, and your pagan neighbors start to look at you like, that's not good, um, because as soon as you stop worshiping the city gods, then the city gods are going to start, you know, poisoning the water and raining fire on us and things like that. Any bad thing that happens gets, gets blamed on those who aren't worshiping correctly. So they look at you with suspicion and hostility, like you are a snag in the social fabric. Um, you are a danger to the common good. Um, probably shouldn't be doing that, but I can't make you stop. And so you're, you're looking at that person, and then, so you're one of these people who has entered into the family of Jesus, and then you face financial difficulty. Who do you call on? Your old neighbors aren't there for you anymore. You're part of a new family, and the family has an obligation for caring for you and helping you when you need it. See, there's a balance between the whole community, the whole city outside the church, and inside the church itself. This command doesn't end with just taking care of our own, as important as that is. Paul insists that the mission of the church, precisely as part of bringing the good news in word, is to also bring the good news in deed, to do good for everyone. So here, here's what Paul's getting at. Throughout the last couple of chapters, five and six, as we've been reading through these, he has implied over and over again that followers of Jesus, because they are being transformed by the good news of Jesus, are to reflect that way of life, his way of life, into the world around them. And these pagan neighbors just shocked that these Jesus followers are exempting themselves from civic life and shocked that they are gathering together and forming communities across ethnic lines and across social lines and across economic lines, no one does that, are nevertheless still finding these people like good, positive people to be around. It's like, I don't know what you're doing that's going to cause the gods to be angry at us, but I do know that having you in my apartment complex is a really good thing for us. Do you see, you see the tension there? I'm afraid of what you teach and what you do, and I love having you around. Because when you're around, we're all better. Because the, the investment of the Jesus followers into the world around them whether they're building a library or turning an abandoned lot across the street into a garden or shoveling sidewalks, whatever they're doing, their, their investment in the community is a, a living symbol. It's, it's a tangible sign, a picture of the message of the gospel. The good news that a new kingdom and a different way of living is coming and, in fact, is now here. 
in this church. As their love spills over the walls of the church, splashes on everyone around them, they start to see, oh, that's a, that's a, different, way. That's a different way of doing things. See, if the, if the self-giving love, if self-giving love is at the heart of the message, then self-giving love is at the heart of the messengers. The messenger has to fit the message. And as we think about how to apply a passage like this one to our life together today, uh, I, wanna, I want us to keep in mind that for Paul and for his first readers, the kind of lifestyle Paul is describing here is a brand new sort of grand social experiment, if you want to call it that. No one has tried this before. Uh, one theologian put it, this way when he described the church. What, what is the church as Paul sees it? Well, the church was known, and for this reason seen as both attractive and dangerous, the church was known as a worship-based, spiritually renewed, multi-ethnic, polychrome, mutually supportive, outward-facing, culturally creative, chastity-celebrating, socially responsible, fictive kinship group. Fictive here meaning they're united around a story, not a bloodline. And it's a group that is generous to the poor and courageous in speaking up for the voiceless. Did you catch all those adjectives? Worship-based, spiritually renewed, multi-ethnic, polychromatic, mutually supportive, outward-facing, culturally creative, chastity-celebrating, socially responsible kinship group united around a story. No one had ever tried before Paul to create communities across ethnic and social lines. No one in the history of the world, and no one it certainly hadn't tried to combine these different groups and live together as a family with all of those family obligations and responsibilities. Me uniting myself with you as part of the same family, even though we don't share the same blood, we don't share the same skin color, we don't share the same socioeconomic level. We have almost nothing in common except for the one who brings us together. And me saying to you and you saying to me, we're part of the same family. We're responsible for each other now financially and in all the other ways. If you're going to make something like that work, you're going to need some teaching and some teaching about how to use your money or the community is going to rip itself apart. The church was the first in the world to try to pull together a community of people who are radically different, united only around one thing, the Messiah. Of course, we take it for granted because that's just what, you know, enlightened modern Westerners do. So we miss some of the radical nature of what Paul is saying in a passage like this. So a few thoughts for us today, two specifically, as we think about how this works itself out into our lives. Uh, first, you know, the command to support teachers uh, implies a need for teaching. You know, thinking Christianly doesn't happen by accident. Uh, you don't drift your way into spiritual maturity. As they say, you need others to come alongside you and provide you know, thoughtful, intellectual, I mean, to a point, biblical teaching. Somebody who has thought hard about what this says and is trying to explain it, not somebody who just relies on their natural speaking gifts and strings together three or four nice thoughts with a few Bible verses so that we can all walk out of here feeling inspired. You don't think Christianly by just reading inspirational quotes from Scripture. 
And teaching, it feels even more countercultural in our world than maybe it ever has before. I mean, we're in a, we're in a world, you understand, where uh, we do not believe in expertise, but we are all experts, right? I read the internet, and I know that this very complicated sociocultural theory that we're discussing is still being debated uh, 100 years after it was first formulated by people who have spent their lives studying it and don't still agree on what they're talking about when they talk about it. But I read the internet and I have conclusions. Right? One, uh, one of the authors I, I enjoy hearing from uh, was on a podcast recently saying, uh, somebody had asked him for his opinion on a topic and he said, I'm sorry, I am only 50 books in. I don't have a right to an opinion yet. We need, as a church, if we're going to form Christians who can think Christianly in the world, not just act Christianly because those are the rules, but think Christianly in the world, we need teaching. There isn't much, of a high, there isn't much that's a higher priority other than worship than to gather together and learn. For the church, for the individuals, that means there isn't much higher priority in your life than gathering together under a teacher and learning you can't just appeal to mystery and say, well, you know, it's, I'm mm, too humble to think about those big and heavy things. Too humble or too lazy. I, there's not much of a difference in that question. None of us is exempt from developing a well-formed Christian mind. It is not a private hobby for those who enjoy mental gymnastics. It's all of us. We need teachers. We need teaching. Application number one. Number two, Paul's called a self-giving love. He started this discussion about self-giving love by how it works itself out in the teaching ministry of a church, and then expands it through stacking these agricultural metaphors on top of each other, expands it out into the entirety of the city around the church. Paul is saying, look, this call to self-giving love cannot be contained within the church or within these walls. It has to overfill this building. Because if it's true, as he has said and alluded to over and over again in this letter, if it's true that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, then generous self-giving love is at the very heart of God himself. And it is expressed through his Son's sacrificial death on our behalf. Generous, self-giving love is absolutely at the core of the message. If it's at the heart of the message, then it needs to be at the heart of the messengers. If the message that we carry is a message of self-giving love, and we do not live self-giving love, what does that say about our belief in the message? The message should be shaping us and changing us and reforming and restoring and renewing us. And as it does, that self-giving, self-sacrificial, generous love cannot be contained within the church. It has to overflow the bounds of the walls. It's got to pour into our families and our schools and our cubicle farms and our kitchens and, and our offices and our classrooms and our playrooms and our boardrooms. Our self-giving, well, I should say Jesus' self-giving love through us needs to overflow into all of these areas. Because if self-giving love is at the heart of the message, then it's at the heart of the messenger. And if it's at the heart of the messenger, then you are going to leak it everywhere you go. You will leak self-giving love. You won't be able to hold it in. So as long as we have opportunity, in other words, all the time, as long as we have opportunity, let us do good and be good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith who, who need us because we're part of the same family. So let me ask some questions, some pointed questions. 
Is your workplace better because you are there? Seriously, is your workplace measurably better because you work there? Since you showed up, you have been an integral part uh, and a key player in making your office more kind, more loving, more humane, or just cleaner, or more generous, or friendlier. Is your office better because you're there? If you don't work at an office, what about your school? Is your school a better place because you are enrolled there? Like seriously, sixth grade English class, is it a better class because you are in it? Better than it would be if you weren't there. Are people more respectful of one another and of the teacher because you're in that class? Are people more interested in the project of learning and exploring God's world because you are in that class? Are people more supportive of each other, more interested in doing well because you are there? Bring it back closer to home or your dorm or your apartment, wherever you live. If you, you know, whatever community of people you live with or around or interact with regularly, you know, roommates, family, friends, whatever, is your home a better community because you live there? Is your apartment building a better building because you are in it? Are the people you live with more inclined to put other people's needs before their own, even if it comes at some financial cost or a cost to their own preferences, because they see that kind of thing coming out of you just naturally? Are the people you around more likely to consider others' needs than their own because you're there doing good whenever you have the opportunity? Or, you know, what about, what about our church? Is our church less judgmental, less rigid and prideful, less arrogantly confident because you are here? Does our church struggle less to meet its financial needs because you're part of the body? Do our ministries struggle less to be staffed because you're here and you're part of this family? Are there less people going hungry? Less needs unmet because you're present. Are there less people walking away from a Sunday morning service saying, no one talked to me because you're here. No one cares about me. There's fewer of those people because you are part of this church. Are there fewer people showing up here just desperately wanting somebody to show them that God exists by simply saying hi? Are there less of those people because you are part of this worshiping body? If generous, self-giving love is at the heart of the message, then self-giving love is at the heart of the messengers. How can it not be? And if that's what's at our hearts, then that's what's going to leak out of us wherever we are and wherever we go. In that TV show that Anna and I were watching, if the messenger who went out with the message had truly believed and been shaped by that message of sacrifice with honor, then his attitudes and actions would not have been so obsequious and ingratiating and servile and just fawning. He would have been bold and courageous and honorable because the message transforms the messenger. 
the one who gave himself in love for you gave you a message of self-giving love. If self-giving love is at the heart of the message, then what's at the heart of the messengers? Father, you call us into the same love with which you have loved us in giving us generously, prodigally, self-sacrificially, you have loved us to the very end. To the cost of death, it's death itself in your Son. Father, may the love you have for us through your Son so overwhelm and transform us that our own lives would be characterized by self-giving love on behalf of others. And so that we may continually be called back to that purpose, may you remind us in our worship of you, in our prayer, in your word, and in our song. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.